uh, just being in harmony. We've had a new bass player today, too. I didn't know that. You know, I, I thought about that when I thought, you know, if she could tame the beast, she can pretty much do anything. <laughs> you know, just saying. <laughs> and so secondly, um, with that said, I know a lot of y'all want to be like Pastor Brown and be cool like I am. And, and I'm going to offer you something that I know that many of you think this will help you obtain this elite level of coolness. And it probably will not because it's not the bracelet that makes me cool. I make the bracelet cool. So you'll know that. But I do have, I've given these out before, but I still had over 100 of these. These are just the bracelet that says Hebrew First Assembly of God. And so I'm, I'm just wanted to make them available here because they've been in my office. They do us no good sitting in the office. So at some point in time, when you get dismissed today and you want to say, I want to walk around town in Hebrew and try to look as cool as Pastor Brown and the staff, you know, pray, set your bar high, you know, reach for the moon and you might catch the sky. Are y'all out there? I'm a poet and I didn't know it. I'm already in flow today. So it's going to be a great day. I do want to echo just one final thing with the, the we, are, we, are, we are grateful that we can have the, the picnic. And I hope that you don't allow, there's, there's still a slight chance of rain, but it looks like the, as it gets closer to 4 and 5 o'clock, there's like no chance. So even sunny, sunshine return, it might be a little bit warmer out there. Um, cool weather's on its way this week, though, praise the Lord. Right, grateful for this. But the picnic has a uh, potential to help us as a fellowship. To help us, it helps us in that very... Uh, thought to fellowship, to connect, to get to know people, you know, to to uh, to say, you know what, I worship on this side of the building, and uh, somebody else may worship on that side of the building, but maybe under a pavilion, y'all get your little chairs together, right, and you get you get an opportunity to uh, to 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 maybe make a friend along the way. So invite somebody, um, push yourself to come this afternoon. Uh, again, we, we chose to make it to not do the typical uh, potluck dinner fellowship, but to try to retain it for the most part, just to, to cook it there on the grounds, to, to limit anybody from, number one, carrying the burden that they had to cook, number two, to just make it where we don't have to go, well, did we wear, have this protocol or that protocol, then it's kind of retained there, except for one within, a couple within our church have volunteered to do a couple little extra things along the way, and we're going to let that be a part of it. It's going to be a great surprise to you. So it's going to be a great afternoon. And all the church family said amen. One verse of scripture today, I'm going to be in Daniel again, chapter number six, where we concluded in Daniel chapter five. And I'm not necessarily, you know, following the book of Daniel in the sense of like it's a series. It just kind of became that way. I, I, I picked up from Dr. Brassfield. So this is only my second time to be in the book of Daniel, but it is... Um, the third time that in a row, because Dr. Brassfield preached a message entitled the, uh, A Light in Babylon, and I was so moved by that message, and I've encouraged you to go back, if you can, if you have access to Facebook, you'll find that message on our, on our uh, Hebrew First Assembly Facebook page, and then you'll find my follow-on, Dr. Brassfield preached um, the message A Light in Babylon, and I preached the message entitled When the Light Goes Out in Babylon a little bit of a contrast. It was not in any way contradictory. Dr. Brassfield used Daniel as the light. I used the national sovereignty of the Babylonian people that passed away so quickly and suddenly uh, as a point for me to, to remind our church family of the perilous times we find ourselves living in. 
and the uncertain times that we find ourselves living in. I'm still in that same vein today. We're going to read one verse of Scripture before we pray, and then we're going to kind of glean through some of these others as well. So if you would, if you would help us to honor the pattern and, the, and our precedent that we do by standing in honor of the Word of God, no one looks down upon you if you choose not to stand. It's just something that we believe in our heart that we do to honor a biblical practice. Here it says in the 10th verse of the 6th chapter, one verse, it says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. That's a powerful verse of Scripture. There's already been a prophetic anointing in this house, hasn't it, from the, those that have been on the platform that have either exhorted or encouraged us. That prophetic anointing has been present. I've drawn my... Uh, I've drawn my subject or my sermon title from the last word of this 10th verse, and I'm reading from the King James Version. Your translation, if you use a different one, will probably read quite differently, but it simply says aforetime. Let me drop that down in your thoughts, and we'll make it uh, hopefully help, it, help you to understand it in just a little bit. So, Father, I love you. I've, I'm in this house honored to be here. A great gr- uh, number of people have come out today. I feel honored that, Father, that I may, it, it may be that they feel like, man, I came for worship, I have to endure the preaching. That may be their moment, their motive. They may be the, uh, just the opposite. Well, I didn't really, you know, connect with worship, but I'm here for the preaching. Whatever the case might be, God, let there be an anointing. Come on, church family, we need the anointing of God, Father, to, not only to share the word, but to receive the word. Anything that can distract us, help us for the, a sacred few minutes of time to be able to move it aside that we can connect to the text of this word, Father, this, this message today. God, I thank you for these things in Jesus' name and all God's children said, amen. And you can be said, thank you so much for honoring its practice of standing as we read the, the, the text of Scripture that we choose. There's other texts of Scripture. This, we're going to be in Daniel 6. We're going to kind of glean from it just a little bit along the way. I'll glance at what time it is to just see so I don't go too long, no longer than an hour and 45 minutes or so. I'll try to make sure I narrow it down a little bit for you here. But let me take just a moment to try to connect if I can. I just always think it's very, very important that we understand the context of the book or the letter that we might find ourselves reading in. I think it's always very important that you look at the historical uh, application. I've, you know, Dr. Brassfield did so. I did so last week. I just even want to put you into the time frame, if you would, for a moment. The time frame is approximately 620 to 538 B.C., somewhere in there, towards the latter, towards the 538. Daniel's older man by the time he reached here. We, we reach the sixth chapter. You have to understand the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel cover approximately 100 years of human history. And you read it through in about, I don't know, 25 minutes of your time turning pages. And so Daniel, who uh, came to you know, national notoriety there in Babylon as a, um, a Jewish boy brought captive from the land of Judea and brought to the, the, the courts of Babylon as a young man, we know in that first chapter he chose not to defile himself by eating the king's meat, which simply meant they were going to put things in front of him that were not kosher according to the diet of the Hebrew, according to the biblical law. And he chose to refrain from eating that meat, even at risk of being um, physically punished because of it. 
So, so we know, and most of you know this, so look at it quickly again. The, uh, but last week we see in that chapter number 5, as I mentioned to you, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king that had brought, Bab- brought Daniel to Babylon, has passed. And now it's his grandson, Belshazzar, who is on the throne. And then as we, narrow, as we, as we walk through this, we saw that, that Belshazzar passed. He was, he was killed in a night raid by the Medes and the Persians when they lowered the water of the Euphrates River by diverting it. And he made his, and the, and the, the Medes and the Persians made their entrance into the land, or excuse me, into the city. And the scripture says, that fifth chapter tells us there, the latter couple of verses, that Belshazzar was killed, he was slain, and Darius the Mede took the kingdom. So, you know, that's where we're at in this narrative, and we're going to kind of pick it up for just a moment. Now, as we do so, let me say this one thing before we go into this text. The book of Daniel, you will find, is most likely the most criticized of all the Old Testament books. That scholars, especially if I can use this phrase, uh, liberal scholars, uh, especially criticize it, believing that it was written about 300 years after the events that are recorded in the book. And the reason why is simple, because Daniel's prophecies that are contained... Now, some, some of the book doesn't deal with prophecy. Some of the book deals with just events that are transpiring in Daniel's life. But a lot of it is prophetic in nature. And it came to pass so, uh, so acutely, so accurately, so, so, so amazingly uh, in history that people said, the scholars say, there's no way that it could have been that predictive. It had to be written afterward. But I want to I want to I want to kind of um, contradict that thought for just a moment because when you think about this historical accuracy of Daniel, you say, well, what's going? Who is going to give validation? I've got some theologians that are validating it at a uh, that it was written at a particular time, and then I've got other uh, what we would call liberal theologians that are saying, no, it was written at a later time. You know, I'm just looking for somebody to to validate the book that I can believe in their validation. Well, there's one that I'd like to mention today, just very quickly. And, and so even when he spoke, here's what he said when he spoke to his generation. He said this about a, a father, an ancient father to the Hebrew people. He said, before that man ever existed, he said, I am. And it was Jesus that said in John 8, he said, before your father Abraham, I am. And so the reason why I want to mention just real quickly, I've told you this many times before, Jesus' doctrine, two things took place. Jesus spoke doctrine, but the miracles validated his doctrine. And the greatest of all validations to his doctrine was his resurrection. He prophesied his own death, prophesied the means in which he would be buried, prophesied who he would be buried amongst. He would die in the midst of, the, of, of criminals and placed in a, in a certain tomb. And then he prophesied that after three days he would rise from the dead. And when he came out of the grave, so once again, that exclamation of his, of his miracles once again validated his doctrine. Are y'all out there? And so, just a moment, in the last week of his life, before he would die at the hands of Pontius Pilate, the Scripture says that when he reproved and he warned the Jews of his day of the impending destruction of Jerusalem that would take place, beginning somewhere around 64 A.D. when the Jewish war would commence, and it would culminate in 70 A.D. when the city was actually taken and the temple destroyed. When Jesus prophesied that destruction, he warned them of, it, of something that would happen, that when they saw it, the, those that lived to see it, he said, you're going to know, you're going to be reminded. And it's in Matthew 24, verse number 15, where Jesus, I believe it's verse 15, where Jesus said that what you see, remember, he said it was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. 
not by the folklore, not by fairy tale, but he said by the prophetic insight of this man Daniel, he said you're going to see some of his prophetic insight come to pass in your lifetime. So let me tell you, you can have every Princeton scholar, every Oxford scholar, it doesn't matter, every denominational theologian that comes out and says Daniel's book is nothing but folklore. I'm going to say this man Jesus said he was a prophet, and I'm going to believe the man Jesus over the liberal scholars of my generation. That's just how I think. Daniel chapter number 6, Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, has been slain. The Medes and the Persians have taken the city, and, the, and not only the city, but the empire of the kingdom. Darius the Mede has been appointed king over the realm of Babylon. Now, very quickly, there's much scholarly debate concerning exactly who Darius is. But that's going to be for another moment for us. We won't go into it today. But just quickly in that text, and I'm not going to read all the text. You're going to have to lightly glean through it even as I'm preaching. But I'm just going to, I'm going to paraphrase some of these things for the sake of time. But as I do so, I'm not saying I'm taking away from the text. I'm saying you've got to go back and read it and fill in the gaps on your own. But Darius did what so many do when there's a change or a change or a transition in leadership. They, they, he, he purged the kingdom of previous uh, you know, leaders and cabinet levels that were, that were uh, you know, uh, familiar with the previous, you know, administration. We see that done even in, uh, in American politics. And so he, he began to set up 120 princes. And then the scripture says in the second verse that there were over those 120 princes, there were three presidents. And of those three presidents, one of which was Daniel. Daniel was chosen to be one of the three that were over the 120 that was over the whole realm so that the king should have no damage. And then the third verse says that this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes. After a period of time of working in the administration of Darius the Mede, it did not take longer to, too long to see that there was a favor upon Daniel, even as an aged man, that he must have worked harder, smarter, with greater integrity, are you out there? That he honored his, uh, the, the administration of the Medes. He recognized them as a sovereign kingdom. He served them. There was no malice in his heart. He wasn't working against the king. And so I, I just want, and the scripture says, I believe it is in the, what is it, the fourth, the, the, is it the fourth verse or one of the verses there it speaks about, no, it's the third verse, that there was an excellent spirit in him. Now, we know that Daniel had a prophetic gift. Let me tell you, the anointing of God upon your life is not just so that you can prophesy in church. The anointing of God upon your life is so that you can walk with integrity in life, that you can have character, that you can have work ethic, that you're either your employers or though if you are the employer and there are employees under you, that they will look at you with admiration because of how you handle yourself. Now, that's part of the gift of God that's on the inside of us. But in this context, real quickly, I have to believe that, that Daniel understood that his service was not to simply Darius the Mede, but also to Cyrus the Persian. Because Cyrus had been prophesied by name by the prophet Isaiah a hundred or almost 200 years earlier that he would be a critical voice in bringing the Jews back from the Babylonian captivity. And so I believe that Daniel, as he's serving Darius the Mede, he also knows he's serving Cyrus the Persian. But then in doing so, he also knows that he is serving God's prophetic plan for the people of Israel. Does that make sense? And you've got to feel that same way about what you do in your life. That every part of your life, someone's watching you. Somebody's, look, you're a living epistle, written and read amongst men. 
that you're reflecting not Hebrew first assembly in essence, but you are reflecting God and His eternal kingdom. So walk with character. Man, that ain't even in the notes, but that's good preaching right there. Let's go a little bit farther. But how many of you know our adversary uh, is very subtle? And so the adversary was working in those days. He's always working to oppose God's plan, his kingdom, and his divine purpose. And he stirs up the other presidents and princes out of jealousy and envy. And so what they thought they sought to do first, they sought to find an opportunity to scandalize Daniel by finding fault with his work as a president or prime minister and overseer. But they could not because he was so faithful. Isn't that powerful? That what a testimony that these men said, man, we're trying. I think that's the fifth verse, so the fourth and fifth verse, that we're trying to find something that we can, we can accuse him before the king. But, man, that God dots every I and crosses every T. He just makes sure that he is walking even as an He must have had a supernatural energy. Is it cosmic? Is cosmic? I always say it wrong. Help me with it. His, yeah, yeah, that's it. Thank you. His functioning, his mental capacity is functioning in his 80s far greater than one that I could call out today. And you know who that is, and we'll just move on from there. Thank you. There's a few people that's connecting with. I may not be able to pronounce it always, but I know what I'm thinking. Verse 5, let's go on. So, then they, 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 so when they couldn't capture him here, they said, let's go further, and let's see what we can do. If we're going to find something, we're going to have to take something about his faith. Let me tell you, that's where we're going to start narrowing here in just a moment because I'm telling you, we're seeing it happen right in front of our eyes. It's always been a part of the, of the, of the people of God that choose. To, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. And there's going to be a demonic scheme set to thwart who you are in Christ and your testimony that's affecting the lives of others. So the desperate men then turned to seek to betray Daniel concerning catching him something in the law of God. Now, again, let's go to verses 6 through 9. The men then, here's what they did. They manipulate the king to sign a decree, maybe a mandate. Y'all, I think y'all can find out where I'm going here a little bit. I'm going to let my hand out a little too early. But listen, so they, they, they said, well, maybe we can manipulate the king by taking his religious expression, and we're going to regulate it for 30 days. We're going to limit his religious expression and what we're going to do is we're going to get a decree passed that every person that's a part of the Babylonian Empire who worship a plurality of gods, they didn't really care which god, they could walk down the city gate towards the Ishtar gate, I told you last week, and there were all kinds of deities. They could choose one in route. But if you were Hebrew, there was only one god. And so many even worshipped a living monarch as a deity. And so that's what they did. They said, and how much that would build pride in Darius's mind. And he fell prey to this foolish decree. They said, we're gonna, we're gonna, Darius, we would like to so honor you for your skill in leading our nation that we want everybody to not pray to any deity, any god whatsoever except for you and you only. And Darius, when his pride was built up in his heart, he signed the decree. And then in verse number uh, uh, 10, which is where we took our text, here's what we see that Daniel did. When Daniel discovered that the king had signed the executive order, when, the king had dis- when he had discovered the king had signed the, dis- the executive order or the mandate or the decree, you know what Daniel did? He didn't go outside and protest with signs. He didn't pass a petition to alter or to abolish the decree. He just simply went back to his house. And see, Babylon 
was north of Jerusalem, by, by about 300 miles, I believe it is. And so he did what he had done aforetime. He swung open the windows. It was breakfast, it was lunch, and it was dinner. And after he had finished eating, as his practice was, he remembered his homeland. He remembered the people of ancient Israel, and he knelt on his knees, and he called upon the God of heaven. Now, not just any deity, he called upon Yahweh God. He called upon the God that had revealed himself to the children of Israel on the mount called Sinai. When God came down in fire and revealed himself to a chosen people. Are y'all out there today? And he prayed what as he had done previously. Now, Daniel was not acting in defiance by beginning to do something after the mandate. He was continuing to exercise his faith and praying to God as he always did. Actually, what Daniel was doing, and time's not going to allow me to develop this, but i gotta, I got to teach you in this. He was fulfilling prophetic mandate by praying when he was taken from his homeland and put in another country. He was fulfilling the scriptures by praying for his people and for the restoration of the land of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem several hundred years earlier, Solomon had prayed. And Solomon prayed and said, God, he said, if we ever sin against you and you send an army in and you take our citizens and you take them into a far country somewhere, if in that far country they will humble their hearts, if they will pray, if they will look to this city of Jerusalem, God, will you hear from heaven and will you heal their land? And so every time that Daniel did this, well, I'll tell you what Daniel did. What Daniel was, I believe, this is what I believe. I believe that he understood the call of the people of Israel. That Isaiah had said that God had chosen the people of Israel to be a light to the nations. And that he knew by the Torah and the temple that they would have, they would have knowledge that there's not a plurality of gods, but there's one true God. And that you couldn't live any way according to the dictates of the appetites of the flesh. But that you needed to bend your fleshly appetites to the revealed will of that one true God. That you are not your own, that you were bought with the price. Are you out there? And he believed that when he was praying there in his house, knelt towards the south. Where's the south for me here? This direction. He's praying and he's saying, oh God. I want to pray that the people of ancient Israel, my brothers and sisters, where their hearts will come to repentance, and God, you will, you will raise us up again and bring us back to our own land. You can read that prayer if you want to in the ninth chapter. It's actually spelled out, and you can see and discover what he actually said in part of a prayer that would be akin to what he offered that day. So his prayer wasn't just petitioning God for personal blessing or prosperity, but it was for repentance and restoration of the nation. Verses 12 through 17, then the men report these findings to Darius. And Darius is the king, and even though he's the king, but he is not a totarian gov um, a ruler. Uh, there's a, he's bound to the civic laws of the Medes and the Persians. And once they had signed a decree, there was no altering. It had to come to pass exactly as that it had been written. And so what they did was they fulfilled the decree. That means that he would have sent soldiers to the house that Daniel dwelt in for these many years, they would have taken Daniel and put him in some type of chains, most likely, or some type of uh, cuff, and would have walked him down to wherever they had preserved a den of lions that they used for capital punishment. 
for the purpose of not only uh, to destroy uh, those who broke the law, but also uh, to, to, in their minds, to deter by such a violent form of corporal punishment. And Daniel, as an aged man, was thrown how far down the aged man would have fallen into the bottom of the pit, we know not. And then they would have closed the door up and left him, left him to the, to the wild beast. The scripture tells us that Darius is bothered by this and he returns home. And he goes home and he doesn't watch uh, late news that night. There's no Colbert show and there's no uh, Fox News television. He's turned it off and he's not watching anything, no music. He's grieved in his heart because he had a measure of respect because Daniel had served him well. That still says a lot about Daniel's integrity, doesn't it? That the king is grieved that he had signed now signed the decree. And so on the next morning early, he comes back, listen to this, he comes back to the den. And the Bible plainly says with a feeble voice, he really doesn't believe. He knows that there's no way that this aged man has been able to endure a night alone with, the, with these hungry, ravaging beasts. And he cries out in a feeble voice and he says, Daniel, has thy God been able to save you from the mouths of the lions? And then... From the darkness, listen to this. Remember what Dr. Brassville preached. From the darkness, a light in Babylon still shines. And Daniel echoes his voice from the bottom of the pit. And he says, King, live forever. Because my God, maybe not your God, maybe not the gods of all those that dwell in Babylon, and certainly not the God of the 120 who conspired against me, but the God of my fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God that called us out of Egypt when we were in the womb of Egypt and brought us into our promised land. That God sent his angel and clothed the mouths of the lion. Man, I can preach right there on that. What a powerful word it is for us here today to know that sometimes you don't have to fight your battle, but you got to still do your part, right? And so uh, God fought his battle for him, and God sent an angel clothed the mouths of, of the lions. Now, there's an, I put it this way, it is that there's a kind of cruel twist of fate, if you will, to this text of Scripture, because the king, once he discovered that a miracle had been worked right in front of him, sins for the presidents or those who conspired against Daniel and brought their wives and their children and cast them into the very same pit. And the Bible says, and the lions had mastery over them and broke all their bones and devoured them. But verse 23 stands out. You ought to read it. It'll build your faith here today. It says, listen to this. The end of that verse, it says, there was no manner of hurt found upon him because he believed in his God. Isn't that powerful for us today? And then verses 25 through 27, Daniel writes another decree, and he commands all men in his kingdom to tremble in fear. He doesn't write a decree mandating that they worship the Yahweh God, but he writes a decree demanding that they simply honor or reverence or have respect for the God of the Hebrews, the God of Daniel. And the book closes in the 28th verse that Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Isn't that a powerful narrative, 28 verses that found? I mean, you're talking about leading your Young at Heart program. If Daniel ever comes to Hebrew First Assembly, we've got to give him an office, don't we? He needs a, he needs, we've got to give him some type of position. 
because of the integrity and the blessing and the favor of God that was upon him. But here's where we're at today. So now I've said all this, and once again, that was my introduction. No kidding. Man, I'm glad they got food for us about 3 o'clock or so, get this thing started. we got to ask a question. It's going to become more relevant to you in the days ahead. And I want you to hear me very carefully, and I'm going to shift. Once again, I fooled you today by not wearing my black preaching outfit today. So with this, I want to say this. You and I must inquire, when is it right to disobey edicts, decrees, mandates, or laws? When is it right for a Christian as a believer? Because by nature, we want to serve. By nature, we strive to be obedient to a higher authority. Are you out there? If you're a born-again believer, your first obligation is to God. But we don't, we don't shy away from civil government, do we? We believe in it. We find that it's necessary. There will come a day in God's eternal kingdom when we are all indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit to the fullest degree when there will no, be no need for decrees and laws and mandates. Are you out there? Or There won't be a yellow line and a white line because we'll be driven by the power and the life of the Spirit of God. But as long as we're in the flesh... Even Paul wrote about the Mosaic law. He said the law is not written for a righteous man, but for an unrighteous man. To help him hedge his way. To let him know that if you, if you go too far on one side or the other, you're going to get in trouble. And you're going to get out of the bounds that God's given us. So you and I as believers, if you've studied the scriptures at all, you know about Romans 13 verses 1 through 8. Are you there? And we're not reading it today for the sake of time. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 18. We all should be encouraged to read these texts of Scripture. You and I do not desire to be disobedient to civil government. We honor and we pray for our leaders even in times when we disagree with them. Is that a, are you all out there today? Would you all help me today? And I'm especially grateful for the constitutional republic that have been given to us as Americans. That I can have representation Right At the highest level of government in, in the land, I can have representation. And so we don't only read uh, the, uh, the Apostle Peter's epistle, but then we also see a, a, not necessarily a contrast, but a balance. Because we remember that there were times when he or other apostles were being mandated by the legal authorities in their day not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. Does anybody remember? It's early in the book of Acts. It's early in the days of the, uh, of the apostles when they have preached and the whole city of Jerusalem is on, is on an uproar because they're preaching that the man they know about, Jesus of Nazareth, that they know that Pontius Pilate killed and hung on a tree. Now the apostles with great signs and wonders are preaching that not only did he die, not only was he buried, but he was raised from the dead and he's ascended into the right hand of God. And he's the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings. He's the son of David, the one that David looked to and said, My Lord said unto my Lord, are you out there? The Lord said unto my Lord, they knew the prophetic uh, promises of God. And now this man Peter and these other apostles are preaching that he's alive. And the Sanhedrin said, you can't preach anymore in his name. You can't teach. You can't meet. We're telling you by, by legal decree that you can no longer meet and preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And the apostle Peter who encourages us in his epistle later in life at that moment when he was forced to make a decision based upon the convictions of his heart. Here's what he said. He said, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you have to judge for yourself. Because we're going to continue to preach and teach Jesus Christ. 
Now, did you know a thorough and exhaustive study of both Scripture and history as it relates to the Judeo-Christian faith and heritage will find multiple occasions when believers, as an act of obedience to God or their conscience, refuse to obey a lawful yet evil or erroneous civic command? Did you know that? Study it on your own. Here's where I'm at today. I believe that we are seeing the first fruits of such moments in our lifetime. And I'm just trying to help you today. I'm trying to help you because you're going to need courage in the days ahead. You're going to need courage. Let's go a little bit farther. It's often said, Daniel, here's what Daniel, Daniel, so we stand for truth and we kneel before God. Can I say it one more time? Daniel stood for truth, but he knelt before God in prayer. So let me say this. You and I have to be convinced that what we stand for is biblically true. You have to be convinced by deep-seated conviction of Scripture. You cannot or should not, excuse me, you, should, you cannot or should not refuse to obey government for frivolous things. You better be guarded. I've told you before, when you plant your flag down on that mountain, you better make sure that it's true to biblical convictions and teaching and instruction, and you better be unwilling to move off of that mountain that you plant your flag in. So you have to know. So when you're conscious, here it is, I, I believe this, if, if we broke uh, uh, the, the, the edicts or the mandates of the, of the government for frivolous things, that would make us lawbreakers. And I don't want to be a lawbreaker. But when my conscience before God is grieved and my heart burns in me because of conviction, then I ought to obey God rather than man. So there are two things that I'm going to take note of today that I'm warning you. I'm just telling you some of these are familiar to us, but we've tried this before. But I'm going to share with you a little bit more than maybe what you're aware of just very quickly. There are two things that are happening that I'm warning you as an American Christian. And very carefully you can hear this. The more power that the federal government gets it diminishes your rights as a citizen. And let me say this. The more power, I'm going to go ahead and say it, that the liberal left gets in this nation, your freedom of worship and of speech will become even more limited. Let me go a little bit further. Say, Pastor, give me proof of this. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the most difficult thing for a brief moment that pastors often talk about today because in no wise do we want to follow ourselves falling under the the labels that come upon us when we address the difficult thing of, of homosexuality from the pulpit. Let me tell you, if you've never spoken a subject about this subject publicly, you don't understand how what a challenge it is. Because no, no one, there's nothing in our heart. I'm, I'm not a mean-spirited person. I will never be a mean-spirited person. Because the grace of God is inside of me to love and to walk in humility and to be kind to people. That's just who I am. I didn't mean to spit like that, but that's just who I am. But, but it's a difficult, but see, the, what, what's happening is the church is getting so hedged in that the only people that get the opportunity to speak about it is the secular media the public education system, political leaders, the, the, the sports and entertainment icons have a far louder voice than any pastor does. You tell me of, of a pastor in America that has a bigger uh, national audience than LeBron James. Are you out there? There's not one. And so what, what do we do? So we have to be very careful. So let me tell you, any reproof in the future of the LGBTQ movement lifestyle is going to be classified as hate speech it's already happening churches will be banned from teaching that homosexuality is a sin that day is coming 
Are you, I know you don't want to hear that, I'm telling you, but, but I'm going to go farther than this. You say, Pastor, is that really true? Did you know in 2014 that, 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 the, that the, the lesbian mayor of, of Houston, Texas, subpoenaed all, she subpoenaed all the sermons of the pastors in the city to find out whether or not that they were preaching against the LGBTQ community? Now, the pushback prevented it from happening, but at the same time, just the notion of it should cause you but let's go a little bit farther. There will come a moment when you as a parent will be forbidden from, if your child comes home, having been inundated through the secular school system, where your child maybe is at that moment where you're saying, Mom or Dad, I just want to talk to you about something. I just want to talk to you about it. I'm kind of feeling a conflicted thing inside of me. How many know that would be a very difficult conversation? I understand. It would be a challenge for anybody. Challenge for the child. Challenge for the parent. And that you said, man, I, I don't really know. Let me, so I'm going to call Pastor Jojo. And I, I want to I get together as a youth pastor. He's got a lot of children and see what he'll miss. And maybe they can help. And, maybe, and so if, that, if Pastor Jojo was to sit down and to say, I wanna, I wanna, let, let me just help you. You know, you've you got to learn the scriptures. You've got to get the word in your heart. You've got to know who you are in Christ. You've got to learn how to reject carnal appetites that are contrary to the will and the word of God. Same thing that we teach any of us. Right, but but it, now with a little bit more of a narrow emphasis upon it, let me tell you just real quickly: you've got to know that there will come a moment in time when you, as a parent, will be forbidden from bringing your child to a pastor who would then teach your, or counsel your child uh, in a, in a way that would not acknowledge them as as uh, as a, as a homosexual or gay child. That day is you say no way, Pastor. Well, let me go ahead and tell you. Let me go ahead and share with you some things because there's just like in the days of Daniel. Now, this was in Great Britain, but what you have to do is you can't just look at what's happening in the United States. Sometimes you have to say, what's happening in the Western world? So in Great Britain, there was a letter to Boris Johnson and the Women's and Equalities Minister, which followed Jane Ozane, excuse me. She was a prominent British evangelical Anglican who is um, a lesbian. And she calls for this. Here's what she called for. She, she asked Boris Johnson, as the Prime Minister of Great Britain, to, in legislation... She said it needs to be adopted that gentle, non-coercive prayer on sexual ethics be included in legislation that would be banned. Make sure that they don't have the right to pray, are y'all out there, to pray and to try to help somebody. Now, I understand conversion therapy has been way on the way far extreme. And I'm not even talking about that today, but I'm talking about just prayer. Listen, let's go a little bit farther. She said this, all prayer that seeks to change or suppress someone's innate sexuality or gender identity is deeply damaging and causing immeasurable harm. Go a little bit farther. So she simply, uh, this was another, Matthew Heinemann says this, he co-founded the lobby group Banned Conversion Therapy, called for Christians to be banned for praying for someone with unwanted same-sex attraction. He denied that anyone willingly seeks out such help. And here's what he said. Here's, these are his words quoted. The pernicious power of prayer must be dealt with. So this is in the Western world. So where edicts and man, they haven't made it yet. But every time that they're presented, they're bumping the piano one inch at a time across the stage. So there's going to come a moment in time when you as a parent are going to have a very difficult decision that you'll have to make. Are you going to teach what is true to your convictions? Or are you going to allow the government at that moment in time to dictate for you what is right or wrong morally according to your interpretation of Scripture? Are you out there today? I know you're not shouting me down, but I'm telling you the truth today. So here's what I want to say about this very quickly. 
So this is so difficult to talk about it because, again, I'm a non-contentious person. I'm a a a meek and a quiet person by nature. But I can see the handwriting on the wall. I can see what's happening, and my job is to charge you and challenge you and encourage you to help you start thinking in advance that, well, how am I going to handle myself when I'm faced with a decision like this? Just real quick, like Daniel praying towards Jerusalem, I believe it's our mandate to pray for men and women to be delivered from darkness and to be brought into God's marvelous light. I just believe that's the mandate. Now, whether I do it in a one-on-one counseling session with someone who came to me, I wouldn't necessarily go to them, but if they came to me, or whether I do it in private in my own time at my own house like Daniel, I believe it's the role of the church to say, God, the world doesn't know what we know. The world doesn't see and understand. They don't have the convictions that we have, but God, it's our responsibility to be a light to the truth, right? And to pray that way, but I'm telling you, there is a push within the government's of the Western world to silence the voice of the church even in prayer toward God. You can say, Pastor, I don't believe that. Well, you don't have to believe it. You look it up. You'll find it to be true. Let me go a little bit farther before I close. I said, Pastor, man, these are just, I wanted to hear a nice, a nice poetic sermon that, lived, that caused me to just feel good about myself. Mm, I'm sorry you'll have to find another church. I'm just telling you because we're living in perilous times and dangerous times. And, and I can't get my sermons from Springfield, Missouri. And I can't get it from our little hub of organization. I, I'm going to get mine when I lay my face on the, on the scriptures. And these are the convictions that, that God has put in my heart. And I feel a public responsibility to this church to share these convictions with you. What you do with them, that's what you do with them. I don't preach this way every, I'm not trying to defend what I'm preaching now, I'm just telling you the truth. If you're new, I don't preach this way every time we come together. But at the same time, how can you be a pastor in today's generation and not speak about these issues? Because they're affecting every single one of us. And why did I entitle this message aforetime? Daniel didn't suddenly join a movement. This is who he was. This is what he did. These were his long-seated convictions that suddenly the government intruded on his convictions. He didn't charge the heel into the king's court and demand the court do this. He simply said, I'm living life according to these convictions, and they intruded upon him. A four-time. Let's go to the last one, number two. This is the most controversial subject that any of us are talking about. You talk about it. We talk about it. It gets whispered in church, on the back row of the church at times, here and there, in the foyer, and it's about the vaccine. Don't pretend that we, it's already, I guarantee it's probably been mentioned this morning. I should say, you can't say guarantee and probably, because that's not, that doesn't matter. I'm going to take guarantee out. I'm going to say, I'm going to probably guess that it was even mentioned in this house today already, that somebody talked about it, was brought up at some level. And so I wrote it this way. Choosing not to get the vaccine is resulting in many being discriminated against, slandered, fired from their jobs, ostracized, mocked, and ridiculed. You want to see who is now the new target of late-night television? It's the anti-vaxxers, because that's what they like to label. Anybody that just says, you know what, I feel like it's my right to make a decision about what I put in my body in this sense right here, but I, we now are, you're, you're now the laughing stock. But here's where we're at. Here's where the debate gets more difficult. Now, remember, don't let this be, don't separate this from the edict 
that the president signed that limited who Daniel could pray to. Because I'm teaching you, and I'm getting ready. It's the final point. I'm on this is the last one, but this is the one that we're going to focus on in closing this message. And we'll have a wraparound effect to come to the place where we need courage in this house. All of us need courage very quickly. And so I just want to remind you of Daniel, Daniel's refusal to, 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 to stop doing what he believed was his God-given right and calling and responsibility, which was to pray to the God of heaven. And an edict was signed that was attempting to limit what he would do. And so with this, I want to say this, there are many sincere believers who have taken the vaccine believing it was the right for them to do so. And I respect them for that. And I in no wise will say anything concerning that choice that was made. And I've told you before, and I'm going to tell you again today, there are people as close to me as close can be who have received the vaccine. And I have not ridiculed and said any singular word, and I will not. But there are many other sincere believers who have not chosen to receive the vaccine, believing it's not right for them, male or female, nor is it necessary for the greater good. That's their sincerely held conviction. Now, here's where it gets a little bit muddled. There are many sincere Christians who I believe erroneously believe that all Christians should take the vaccine to show love of thy neighbor. And I don't believe that's accurate. Me personally, and you can ask me privately why, and I'll tell you. I don't want it to take away from my sermon time today. But let me say this. Here's the truth. Their sincerely held position that all Christians should take the vaccine out of love of neighbor is not going to alter the sincerely held belief that the federal government should not be empowered to issue a mandatory vaccine. It's not going to. Now, I've told you before, my, how many of you know it's typically you're more, you're more adamant about what affects you? Typically, isn't that right? A tendency, if it affects me, I have a tendency to be a little bit more aware, right? And so I've taken the position, I'm more of a believer and a defender of natural immunity. That if you able, were able to endure the virus, that now the studies out of Israel say that you have a 27 times greater immunity to the virus than those that are vaccinated, which I told somebody this way, I said, it seems like God's vaccine works better. But that's another thought altogether. Here's what's happening, though. Here's, what the, here's the concern. The greater the overreach of the federal government, the flickering light of the constitutional republic continues to dim. Don't forget that. So here's where I'm narrowing this. Here's the apex of the sermon. If you didn't hear anything else, young and old alike, especially these young boys and girls that are in the sound of my voice, hear me today. The question is not, do you have the right to resist tyranny? The question is, do you have the sacrifice and the courage? That's the question. That's what's being weighed in the balances in our time. Can I tell you a little bit of a story real quickly? Because to resist tyranny, one will suffer persecution and may endure harm and loss. I don't know if any of you are familiar with a, uh, a brother and sister. Um, I don't want to say team. They were part of a team that was in the 30s and 40s in Germany. They're, they were Hans and Sophia Scholes. You can find their story under the context of the White Rose. There's been literature and books and movies made about it out of Germany. And they're held in high esteem now. Certainly not at the time. And Han, they were both raised in the German youth movement. Have you ever read about the German youth movement, how that they were teaching the youth there that the, the, um, the, the German race was the pure, the Aryan race was the pure race and to, to hate all others or superior to all others, uh, right? Jews, blacks, uh, other uh, ethnicities, right? Y'all know a little bit. So they're teaching these young kids. 
Well, some of them, though, when they, started, they got on the edge of adulthood and they went out and saw what the Nazis were actually doing, it, it kind of worked reverse when they saw that, wait a minute, this, this is tyrannical. This is oppressive. This is murderous. And so Hans was one that when he went, I think he was in the army for a short period of time, and already the Jews were heavily persecuting, and, or excuse me, the Germans were heavily persecuting the, the Jews. And so he got, he, when he got out of the military, I think it was, that they gathered, he began to gather some other young adults, and they, they began to uh, put together certain pamphlets that they, would, they were trying to enlighten, especially the younger generation, those that were in school or in college especially, about the dangers of the Nazis. They were warning them. And so they also, they aligned their convictions with biblical and philosophical support to create an intellectual argument of resistance. It was a passive, nonviolent resistance to the Nazi government. And so on a fateful day, uh, Sophia and her brother Hans were in a college in Munich. And what they did was, while class was going on, they would kind of indiscriminately go through and they would kind of toss out pamphlets for people when they got out of the kids, got out of class. They could come by and they could grab one and it would warn them about things that the media wasn't telling them about. Are you out there today? Sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? It's kind of scary when you think about it. And so, but something odd happened. There was one pouch of, of pamphlets left and it was, they were getting ready where they needed to get out of there because they were going to sound the, you know, the, 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 Alarm is going to sound. It's going to have time for class to be dismissed. So Sophia went up to the, uh, to like in the stairwell there, over the atrium, and she took that last little pouch of those pamphlets, and she dumped it out to flood the atrium so that when the students came out of class, they'd be everywhere. But unfortunately, the custodian saw her, and he turned her over to the, is it the Gestapo? And so the, the Nazi police. And so after just a few short days, they've rounded up those that were a part of the White, Ro or the white Rose and, and they put them on, a, on, on trial. And so I believe it's the 21st of February, 1943, that they were brought before uh, a makeshift, uh, you know, trial where they had no defense. They were not allowed to speak for themselves. Anytime they were, anything they, they, were, they would speak, they would be cut off. But it is recorded in history that Sophia said these words. Here's what she said. She got a few words in before they would cut her off. She said, somebody, after all, had to make a start. What we wrote and what we said is also believed by many others. They just don't dare express themselves as we did. So no additional testimony was allowed during their defense. That was their only defense. And so on the 22nd of February, 1943, her brother Hans and their other good friend was found guilty of treason and condemned to death. So they were given a few minutes to collect themselves. They were allowed to smoke a cigarette. So they smoked a cigarette and, 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 so, and then uh, her final words were recorded before she and her brother and their dear friend were taken to a guillotine and they were beheaded at the hands of the Nazis. And here's what Sophia's last known words were. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? Is it such a, she said, it is such a splendid, beautiful, sunny day and I have to go. But how many will have to die on the battlefield in these days? How many young promising lives? What does my death matter if by our acts thousands are warned and alerted? Among the student body there will certainly be revolt. And she was taken to the guillotine. Now, church family, what are you trying to? Are you using scare tactics to try to scare people here? Well, no, what I'm trying to do to tell you is, is that history can repeat itself. 
As I close this message today, let me tell you, in Australia today, they've been under strict lockdowns for months, for months. The churches are now about to be allowed to regather, but it will only be for the fully vaccinated. If you are unvaccinated, you cannot come through the doors of the church. Again in Australia, children ages 12 to 15 can obtain the vaccination without the consent of the parent. So as I put this together in closing this, I often thought about it. I said those that have kind of opposed some of the convictions that I hold here today, they often defile judicial decisions. How many of you know we talked about the abortion decision by the Texas, by Texas law? But there's an abortionist who continues despite the, the law that went into effect because he thinks that it's constitutionally opposing the rights of women to abort their children. And he's going to continue to do so. And so what I'm saying is, is that some people stand up. Some on those other sides stand up for what they believe. But I'm afraid the church, we're cowering down. And moment by moment, we're being hedged in and boxed in. Losing our voice. Our prophetic voices are being contained to the four walls of the church. And it won't be much longer before even those voices will attempt to be censored. So as I said real quickly, as I'm closing this message, and I'm doing so, I'm hedging out just a little bit of it. Here's what I'm saying today. I'm not asking you to view things like I do. I'm asking you that when the situation presents itself, will you have the courage and the faith, knowing the writing, the edict, the mandate, or the law that was signed into being, will you be able to go to your house, open your windows towards Jerusalem, and pray to God like you did before? Does that make sense today? That's a fair question for us all. Daniel's calling included praying towards Jerusalem for the repentance of his people, for the regathering of his people and the rebuilding of the temple, so that once again the light of the law of God was to shine brightly to the nations of this world. In defiance of the mandate, he prayed to God like he did before time, and so should we. We should pray to the God of heaven. Our response should be born of our already existing convictions and practices. Are you hearing me today? So I wrote myself a little question as I close this note here today. And I was especially concerned for the young adults among us who I call students. You call them uh, your, your teenagers. And so, but I, I call them young adults here today. My, my concern is for them especially because I think there, there's going to come a moment when we're going to have to look to our kids to do more than have great form like I do, right? Or to be able to hit a home run right, or run around the track, or to, to be in a play, right, or to, to, to get 35 on the ACT, I think there's going to come a moment we're going to have to hope and pray that our kids can be like Daniel and Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego who will say, I'm going to stand for truth, and I'm going to kneel before God. So, teenager, I hope that, I know that sometimes you probably get tired of hearing Pastor Brown preach, but I'm not trying to scare you today, but I am trying to to tell you we're living in a, a defining moment in our lifetime and we just need you know what what we do in here is going to affect us out there this is our aforetime what you pray in private you'll have the courage to live out in public would y'all stand with me today let's pray let's turn God's house into a house of prayer for a few moments what's our prayer for today courage 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 we all want to live a quiet and peaceable life. 
We all want it, but, but, but are we willing? Are we willing that when the moment, I don't think you have to go looking for the moment. How many know the moment presents itself? Was Daniel in defiance of the king's mandate or was he in obedience to God's word? Was he defying or obeying? Or was he obeying and in doing so, he was defying? That's where I want to be. I want to simply be in obedience to God. And if my obedience to God causes me to be in defiance of edicts, mandates, decrees, or laws, then so be it. That's who I want to be, and that's what I'm encouraged. That's what Daniel did. He just simply said, I'm sorry. The king said, I couldn't pray to God. He went to his house, lifted his hands, and said, God, I want to call on your name. So I want to ask you today in the name of Jesus, can we take a moment of time in this house to just pray for courage? Father, would you give us courage? Would you take a moment to pray not only for yourself, but especially for your young adult, your teenager, your school-aged children, that God will give them courage, that God will help them to have a worldview based upon a word view. I just want to pray in this house. I don't have the musician on the platform. I'm not trying to be Billy Graham. I am trying to say, you know what, we need God's help in the hour in which we live. We have to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. We want to have the integrity that Daniel had when we do our business, when we work, when we serve in the, in the community, when we go to our job, when we work in the government. We want to have integrity. But we also want to have godly conviction that when government intrudes upon those godly convictions, we will have the courage to stand. God, would you help every man, every woman, every boy and girl to have the courage that they need that when the moment is created for them, God, that they're going to stand for what you want to be stood for. God, help us to not sell us our, our souls for frivolous things. Help us, oh God, in the name of Jesus, to put, if we're going to put our flag down in the hillside, if we're going to put it down and say, to this end is no more, right here, this is it, I'm, I'm not retreating any farther, then God, let us make sure we're putting it in a hill that we are willing to sacrifice to the greatest demand that would be placed upon us. Help us to understand this, God, in the name of Jesus. If we can, if it's possible for us with limited vision, limited revelation of what the what the nation's going to look like uh, three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, four years from now, God. It's impossible for us to know. But the thing that we know in this house today, that male or female, young or old, we need courage. We need the courage that comes from God. We need to have a knowledge of God and the Word of God. And when those that, Father God, the enemy twists the minds of those like he did the presidents and princes that conspired against Daniel, that we will have the courage to resist by faith in Jesus' name. That we will lay it all on the line and say, God, I believe God. I'm going to believe God. Give us that courage. That's a fair prayer today in this house. Isn't it, church family? That's not scare tactic. That's not saying I got this off of the news, Fox News or Newsmax or any of the conservative news to contrast the liberal news of CNN or CNBC. I got this out of God's book. Are y'all out there today? I found this in the life of Daniel. I didn't find it in, 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 on the newscast. I found it in a man that when the mandates of the government intruded upon him, he stood for his, his, his previously held godly convictions. So God, let us have godly convictions working in us, in here, in this room, but not only in this room, in our heart, so that God, when we are in the secular culture, in the secular world, God, we're not joining a movement. We're simply being who you've always called us to be, light. Are y'all out there today? Light in the midst of darkness.
God, give us that courage. Would you take a moment, church family, right now? I'm going to let you out of here. I know I probably preached a long time. I can't apologize for it. But God of heaven, I just pray for my, I pray the blessing of heaven on our church family. I just do. I pray for those young students, God, that the world is so shifting so quickly around them, so quickly, inundated by all kinds of things on every side. Father, I pray for not just the, the, the children that are present, or my grandchildren, my my God, I pray, every parent needs to be praying for their child right now because it seems like the enemy's targeting the, are you out there today? He's really targeting the young adult, the children. God, in the name of Jesus, to, to thwart or to skewer their mindset, to give them a secular worldview instead of a, of a, of a, of a biblical worldview. So, God, I'm praying for these children, God. Let, let them be, give us Daniels, God. Give us young men and young women who are rooted in what they believe and know why they believe it and are able to give defense of their faith, God. And let it start in the youth group and take them all the way to young and heart days, God, in the name of Jesus. That, Father, 60 years later, they'll just be able to say, God's been good to me, and I've stood for what I believed, and I've seen the faithfulness of God. So, Lord, I love you today, and I bless the people. I bless the people with all that's within me today. And I've got one final prayer I'm going to pray today, and I have to. I just feel compelled in my spirit right now. Church family, it's awkward. We don't have the soothingness of the, of the musician behind. That's fine. Listen, here's what I, there may be somebody under the sound of my voice that I think somebody was kind of prophesying that, that maybe you've been away from God, away from church. And you came in this house today, and you didn't know why you were here, but you now know because God was pulling you. He was wooing you by his spirit. I want to ask you today to pray a simple prayer with me of rededication to your heart, of your heart to the Lord. Who will pray that prayer with me today? Say, Father, today I believe in Jesus. And I've acknowledged you as my Savior in the past, and if I haven't, this is my very first time. I acknowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried and raised again for my sins. And today, God, I put all my faith and trust in him. And if I've prayed that prayer previously, God, and I find myself being drawn away into the secularness of this world and in the seduction of this world, and I'm coming back to the house of God today, I pray, Lord, today for the strength to rededicate my life to you, to follow you, God, to be who you call me to be. Father God, to stand for truth and to kneel before God in faith and in love and in prayer. God, I pray in the name of Jesus for that person. Maybe there's just one person under the sound of my voice that just being in this room, it was a God-ordained moment for you where God said, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on This is who I've destined you to be. You're my child, and you need to be amongst my children. You need to be in my house. And you're going to come back and say, you know what? I'm going to be back in the house of God. This is where I belong. So, God, I bless each person that may have prayed that prayer with me today. Thank you for the time that was granted to me by this wonderful group of men and women that came out to this house. They've honored me by their faithfulness to you, God, and they've honored me by their willingness to hear the message that I've preached. God, let this word affect them and to be who you've called them to be. In the name of Jesus and all God's children said amen and amen. Thank you.